Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was a week of high-stakes clashes with historic implications. The former president made a final stand in the D.C. Circuit Federal Court of Appeals to prevent his former vice president, Mike Pence, from testifying against him in a grand jury investigating possible crimes growing out of January 6th. Trump lost, and the very next morning, Smith hailed Pence into the grand jury, where he remained all day, presumably providing lurid details of Trump's conduct, many of which we already know in broad outline and others that have yet to be in the public record. The image of a former vice president giving testimony in a criminal investigation into his former boss was among the most singular and astounding details of the Trump years. After years of legal maneuvering, the trial of E. Jean Carroll's allegations against Trump for sexual assault and defamation began. Trump chose to skip it, and since he is near certain not to be called to testify, his fate depends on the cross-examination of Carroll by his brawling lawyer Joe Takapina, who seemed to overplay his hand and try the patience of the judge on several occasions. House Republicans passed a debt reduction bill that was substantively meaningless, but the fact of its passage effectively put the White House in a tricky situation with a catastrophic potential default weeks away. And, finally, the President of the United States officially launched his re-election campaign, leading with the message that the toxic dangers of Donald Trump remain very alive and the coming election continues to present enormous stakes for our still precarious democracy and rule of law. To help us come to grips with the historical battles playing out in real time and where they may be taking the nation, we welcome three of the most experienced and eminent commentators on the national political scene. And they are John Alter, an award-winning author, filmmaker, columnist, and MSNBC political analyst. He has authored five political and historical books, and in 2021, he launched a newsletter, Old Goats Ruminating with Friends, that's devoted to tapping the wisdom and experience of some remarkably accomplished guests. John has interviewed nine former or current presidents of the United States. Welcome back to Talking Feds, John Alter. My pleasure, Harry. Carol Lee, the managing editor and correspondent for NBC News, where she has worked since 2017. Carol has covered the White House for various organizations, including the Wall Street Journal and Politico, since 2008. Carol also recently served as the president of the White House Correspondents Association. Thanks so much for joining us, Carol Lee. It's great to be back. Thank you. And Norm Ornstein, an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, co-host of AEI's Election Watch, a contributing editor for The Atlantic, and a prolific author. Norm co-wrote the bestseller, One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. Always a pleasure to welcome you to Talking Feds, Norm. Thanks for coming. Always a pleasure, Harry. All right. You know, I'm not sure how else to put it. 
Donald Trump is getting the crap beat out of him all up and down the eastern seaboard, and none of the tricks that let him elude accountability for so long seem to be working. On the contrary, it's almost as if his prior sins are boomeranging back. Let's start with his latest court loss in midweek, trying to keep former Vice President Mike Pence from testifying, and no sooner was the ink or the diodes dry on the D.C. Circuit decision that Smith hailed Pence into the grand jury the very next day, where he spent a full day of telling all. Just from the Smith investigations, how big a deal is getting Pence's testimony? What does it give us that we haven't had before? Harry, first, thoughts and prayers to Donald Trump. Mm, Yeah, I'm sorry. I really should have started that way. You know, sometimes we pundits get a little callous. Yeah. So you're right. He's in the open field getting gored on all sides. Thank you, Norm, for injecting that note of real heart. I thought we needed to show that we can have hearts as well. Okay. I think this is a big deal. You know, it was very funny to see Trump's reaction, which was how he still has a very good relationship with Mike Pence left unsaid. Well, it was only two years ago that I uh, tried to have him hanged, but I'm sure he's forgotten that by now, and that he doesn't have anything to worry about if Pence is truthful. The reality is, if Pence was truthful, given the conversations that we already know took place between the two of them leading up to and on January 6th, then Trump's in an even bigger stew of troubles than we thought before, and that's a very big toxic stew. I'm not sure he's going to be truthful, though. You know, in his memoirs, he uh, sugarcoats everything. And in his interviews, he won't even respond to detailed questions about January 6th without just kind of skating off into irrelevant, filibustering moments. And he can do that in the grand jury without perjuring himself. I don't think he is enough of a stand-up guy to do this, to testify honestly. Now, people go, well, he did the right thing on January 6th, but (laughs) this is an extraordinarily low bar. You know, he was advised not just by Quayle, but by other people. He greatly respected that he had no alternative on this, that there was no gray area. And so the fact that he saved the republic, I guess, on January 6th, is not any guarantee that he's going to testify fully. Now, he might testify truthfully in terms of not lying, but he's not going to testify fully, or I'd be surprised if he testified fully. So I think it's not clear how much uh, this will help Jack Smith's case. Well, the one thing I'd add to that is that The former vice president, he spent a lot of time there yesterday. So conceivably, he did disclose a lot. He was asked a lot of questions. um, And and potentially, the special counsel got information that they wouldn't have already had, or at least got it directly from Pence, who would have had private conversations with the president that others may not have been privy to, even if they were told about them afterwards. But it is very interesting, the the sort of vacillating that former President Trump has done. One of my colleagues caught up with him in New Hampshire, 
last night and asked him what he thought of it. And he said, you know, I don't know what he said, but I have a lot of confidence in Mike Pence, which, as you noted, is a dramatic difference from the way that former President Trump has been talking about Pence. So you can see from that comment, it gives gives you a sense of the stakes that at least Donald Trump thinks is in his former vice president testifying. Right. Last time we had a lot of confidence in him was January 5th, uh, 2021. Let me just interject a couple quick lawyer points. First, part of this has to do with the skill of the grand jury. You know, Smith is really treating him and his staff as, you know, another citizen. But second, even assuming you're right, Smith gets this. Pence locked in. Smith gets an insurance policy that whatever is motivating him a year from now, if it's more Trump-friendly, he won't be able to change his story. So that alone is a pretty big achievement. And then finally, just to Carol's point, look, they continue to have their weekly one-on-one lunches after the election. There may be some more good stuff that is literally complete news to us and to Smith. So all of that, I think, makes it fairly significant. There's one other factor, um, which is hard to measure, no, for sure, but Pence's presidential campaign is going really badly. Fast. Like focus groups of Republicans, they just don't want him. And it's not like evangelicals are supportive of him. That should have been his base going into this campaign. And by the way, I, I think Pence's wife might not be as enthusiastic as Pence is about this campaign. It came out that on election night, Chris Christie reported that on election night, Karen Pence went up to her husband and said bitterly to him, election night 2016, okay, now you got what you want. Are you happy? Like she wasn't really particularly interested in being vice president. And I don't know what her attitude is toward his being president, but his campaign's going badly. And he might conclude look, I don't need to stay on Trump's good side anymore. He can't run for president, even if he's running against Trump, with Trump totally trashing all the time. He can't win that way. But if he concludes that, sort of like Mike Pompeo, that this is sort of a non-starter, this idea of running for president, he could then at that point say, you know what, I'm going to play to history. I'm not going to worry about not offending Trump's base and maybe be a little more truthful. You know, we we should not underestimate here the impact of testifying under oath in front of a grand jury. What he said in public, what he wrote in his book, those are not under oath, and they were at a different time. Even if you go back to some of Trump's depositions that he had to take when he was filing bankruptcy motions, he was a different person testifying under oath. So I would guess that we're going to get more out of Pence than we might imagine. But also, there's going to be a mind game with Trump. Trump isn't going to know what Pence said. And the public, I trust Mike Pence, is his usual bluster. I would guess that he's going to get more nervous. And this gets back to where we started. Trump is under siege in so many places. And this has to be just one more little nail into his coffin that is going to make him even more probably likely to lash out and say stupid things 
that will get him in trouble with judges and others. And maybe even possibly, who knows, that his uh, Republican faithful. But it feels to me almost that this is like a detail that we're too close to fully appreciate. You, Many of you have, have uh, spent a lot of time with different presidents, different presidential campaigns. It's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it, that we're at a juncture in history where the former vice president of the United States goes into a grand jury to testify against his president in a criminal investigation. That's stunning in a certain historical way, it seems to me. No? It really is. You know, and we lose our ability to be stunned and shocked because this kind of right. thing happening all the time in the, in the last, you know, six years. So you're absolutely right. I mean, think about I don't know, even Spiro Agnew appearing before a grand jury to talk about, you know, former President Nixon. I mean, these would have been huge, huge things. And there really aren't any other precedents in American history where this kind of thing could have conceivably happened. Presidents traditionally did not get along personally with their vice presidents. So I think this could have conceivably happened in the past, but it didn't. There just weren't any criminal cases involving a president and a vice president. Agnew's problems were separate from Nixon's in the 1970s. It also suggests that this is something that could be getting closer to a conclusion. And it's not just this investigation, but also the documents investigation, Trump's handling of classified documents. So there's this sort of step back and just acknowledge the history and the remarkableness of the vice president and what he did yesterday, but also just that then we could even see another development or perhaps two or three more developments that are also going to be just mind-blowing in terms of what we haven't seen before from a former president. Yeah, I mean, back on the prosecutorial line, I can say it's pretty obvious, really. You don't put Mike Pence in early in the game. So, Harry, just tell me quickly, because this is a legal question. Yeah. So which criminal statutes might Trump have violated in these conversations with Pence? Well, two, but the biggest one is conspiracy to obstruct the January 6th certification itself. That's such a clean thing. Why is he calling him everything he's saying? Why Why the pressure campaign? So you would have obstruction and also a uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States. Those would be the, like, the technical things. I think there's something else that could emerge here that would tie it to yes. a seditious conspiracy. Yes. Which is, did Donald Trump admit to Mike Pence that he lost the election? Because we know that there have been others who said that Trump told them that he knew he lost. And if he knew he lost, then that is really a uh, devastating blow. And if Mike Pence says that Trump told him that, that I think is a nail in the coffin of a seditious conspiracy charge. I'll just say again as a lawyer, the thing I, I said to John is so straightforward. He's trying to impair the January 6th certification. Seditious conspiracy against the president of the United States. Whoa, is that a hundred yard kickoff return or whatever would be the tired sports cliche. So I think there is already pretty good evidence that he does know and Pence would be big. I'll just set to the side the many other reasons that that's an uphill climb. But Trump 
completely savaging him, calling him a wimp. I made a mistake four years ago, calling him the P word, etc. That that's a down the middle trying to keep him from doing the the lawful January 6th certification. But Harry, just I, I don't mean to dwell on this too much, but the part that I don't understand is why Trump's lawyers can't argue, yes, I was very rough on Pence, but that's because I had a different constitutional theory. And I was advised by my attorneys that I was entirely within the Constitution and I was just trying to get him to act in a constitutional way, even if I called him names, a constitutional way according to my own lawyer's theories of the Constitution. So it's just an interpretive difference between us. It's not a straight-up conspiracy. Short answer is that will just not fly on the facts. You know, tell me, Mr. Cipollone, who's already testified, Mr. Philbin, did you tell him this was legitimate? And here are all the other times where he legitimately lost. Eastman told him it was legitimate. And just because Eastman said they would lose in the Supreme Court Nine nothing. doesn't mean that you know Eastman knew that it wasn't legitimate. Uh, actually, so we're going a little field now, but I would say conceding you're going to lose 9 nothing. it's pretty close to saying it's not legitimate. But the short answer to your question on the facts, there's a lot of evidence of his knowledge and his not getting that evidence from counsel. If it were really strong... Otherwise, that would make it a shitty case. But it's not because of the facts and evidence. Nothing special on the law. All right. Well, that's good to hear. Now, so E.G. and Carol, I want to talk about it a little bit in a lawyerly way. But also, we've got this hovering problem. It goes to what we were talking about with Pence, which is there seems to be nothing he can do. He obviously in New York can't shoot anybody on Fifth Avenue. But he seems that he can in the Republican House. And just what will cause these guys who seem to know what he is to actually part company with him? Now, E. Jean Carroll. So I'd like to focus on Trump somewhat. He doesn't show up. What do you think about that? Why is that his decision? And is it a um, blunder for him not even to be there? I mean, the reasoning is because he doesn't want to give it legitimacy and his presence there would do that in their view. And by not engaging in it, he can keep it at arm's length and say it's something that's being handled by his lawyer. I don't legally whether that's the right decision or not. I don't know. But optically and politically, that's something that the former presidents and his team think is the best thing. And also, you know, he's not necessarily a, a very restrained or sort of disciplined person. So going in there might actually really hurt him. So maybe his lawyers don't want him in there either way. But if the whole idea is to undermine what she's saying, having the former president attend and be there is something that would lend it perhaps some legitimacy as if he has something to defend. And so that's the posture that he's taking. And politically, this is, of all the things that are swirling around former president, this is one that is not something that is changing the minds of any of, of the people who support them. Not that there's really much that would, but even people who are on the fence about him, it's not something that, that fully resonates. It's the other stuff that might be a little bit more significant, and that this doesn't line up in that same way. I mean, I'd be interested in what you think, Harry, is a legal matter, like what precedents in civil cases would suggest might be the judgment in a very old case like this. But I think one other reason why he might not have showed up is it would have accentuated the he said, she said 
nature of this case. I mean, it's a straight up he said, she said. And with the judge's decision to allow the excess Hollywood tape into evidence, that's very bad news for Trump because he's already behind the eight ball on the basic who do you believe, Eugene Carroll or Donald Trump. And that just puts him in an even worse position. And if he showed up in the courtroom and the jury takes a look at these two people, you know, they're going to be even more likely to believe her. So I think he's in a lot of trouble in this case. But I, what I don't understand is whether it might be so old and the evidence so old that even if they do believe her, they don't award her very much money. What do you think about that? Point well taken, because... You know, people are used to after Fox and Dominion, the you know, hearing about hundreds of millions of dollars. They've been very cryptic about their theories of damages. But she has said since the attack, which is also being tried, she hasn't been able to have sort of any kind of normal uh, romantic life. And she read from some of the tweets she gets daily, completely, you know, insulting her. But I think that even if she gets a robust verdict, it'll be in the millions of dollars, but that itself won't really be a big, you know, tub-thumping result. It's really the fact of it. And by the way, on the legal point, he cannot show up, and there's no sort of legal doctrine. It's just the kind of contempt or indifference it shows to the jury. But I'm wondering about Carol's point. Is there basically no person there who remains with Trump whom this will affect. That is, there's no sense in which this is a kind of a judgment were he to lose, that he is on top of everything else, a sexual predator, and maybe that peels away some of his support. First, a question. Isn't he on a witness list? Will he not have to come in if he's called as a witness? He will. If he's called as a witness, he is not going to be called as a witness. His team won't call him. It'd be a bloodbath of a cross, and she won't call him. She can use the deposition. Okay. You know, my sense is it's not about the 30%. It's about the next 20%. It's about all of those voters who are torn on a presidential contest over whether they would support a Republican, many of them having done so in the past. We're talking about suburban voters mostly, who are already motivated by the Dobbs decision and other things where this might be another reason to move further away from Trump. The fact that he will keep his 30% is a problem for the other Republican presidential candidates, because the more that he is besieged, the more he is in trouble in a host of ways, makes him weaker as a general election candidate. But at the same time, if he keeps that 30%, given the Republican presidential primary rules, he is still likely to emerge with a nomination. So it's not anything that they want to see. And I'm not as concerned about the size of damages. If you get a jury saying Donald Trump raped this woman, that's still going to resonate. It is an official ruling. It's not just, yeah, he said it was locker room talk, as he said, and these other allegations don't mean very much. It's not going to be helpful to him. So, Norm, I disagree with you on the politics, and you have a lot more people who agree with you than me, but I actually think that this kind of thing in the other cases hurt him in the Republican primaries. I only put his odds of being nominated at about 50%. And the reason is this. 
from having covered the many primaries, this assumption that there are going to be many candidates in the race after Iowa and New Hampshire is not supported by history. So there will likely be, after South Carolina, when you head into the delegate-rich states, there's likely to be only three or the most four Republican candidates. And there's a possibility that there will be only two. So if somebody like, you know, I'm making this up because we don't know how good they will be on the trail. This is all to come. But if somebody like a Tim Scott or an Asa Hutchinson, you know, or somebody finishes a really strong second to Trump in the early primary and the other candidates are running out of money and dropping out, that person might get a one-on-one shot against Donald Trump where the 30% isn't going to do it for Trump. And that candidate will be able to argue, look at all the baggage this guy's carrying. We're going to lose a general election if we go with Donald Trump. Go with me instead. And Trump being in court during a lot of this, a lot of the primary season, that will help the argument of his challengers. So this idea that Trump's rivals will split the opposition is not supported by uh, by the evidence. 2016 is not relevant for this for reasons I could talk about. Well, I, part of it, that image of the president going to court throughout the primary and things like that, there is a large segment of the base for whom that would be reaffirming in the sense that it's an actual visual of what the former president has been saying for even while he was president and and ever since he left office, which is that he's a victim, that there's this system that is out to get him and not him. It's he, if he's very careful how he phrases it, it's them because he's standing in between them and the system. And so they're going after him to get to them. And so I'm not sure. I don't think anyone really knows how this would play out. It's not something that we've seen before in, in our politics, but if we look at the past and, and what has fed the former president's base and what they are riled up about and what keeps him having this hold on the party, and the reason he has the hold on the party is because he has the hold on the Republican primary voters, is that they see him as fighting for them and taking all of these arrows because he's doing that. And so I don't think it's as clear cut as this is going to you know, turn some primary voters off because of the drama. They're used to the drama. They still like him and they've seen drama for years around him and it just keeps getting more intense and they don't seem very turned off by that. He's still the front runner. He's still pulling well ahead of, of others. We've seen Ron DeSantis's polls drop. They're not going up and he's policy wise. He's as close to Trump as it gets and combative and all of those things. But Trump's victimization and this idea that he is the one out there fighting for these voters that everybody forgot about and is exploiting and, and not taking care of, that he's a walking embodiment of that plays well with a lot of people. And so you can see that it won't have the sort of harm that it would on a different type of candidate who may be presenting themselves in a different way, because the idea of him as a victim is so center to what makes him appealing to his supporters. I mean, it is sort of like the whole Access Hollywood tape, which will figure in on steroids. So it, I often hearken back to my feeling, ah, well, they, that, I guess that's it for Trump. And, you know, joke was on all of us. But this is going to be a judgment, as uh, you say, Norm. They're going to play the tape. And if they vote for her, it's because he's a guy who feels famous and he can take these liberties 
and that it not move the needle would be, you know, stunning, but the kind of stunned feeling we've had before. Can I just say one other thing? So it's not going to move the needle with the base, as, as both right. Carol and Norm, the 30%. And it will strengthen that. But I think that we all kind of missed a story around the time Trump was indicted on what most people agree are the weakest of the charges. So, you know, you had extra police down at Foley Square. It turned out none of Trump's supporters showed up. There were more reporters than Trump supporters in Foley Square. It said, oh, he raised all this money. Actually, he didn't. He raised $4 million. And running a presidential campaign nowadays costs $1.5 billion. His supporters are not digging that deep in their wallets for him at this point. So, yes, the hardcore people will never peel off him. Yes, he still has a strong chance of winning the Republican nomination. But this idea that he has a lock on the Republican nomination, I think, defies the twists and turns and history of American presidential politics. It's time now for our sidebar feature in which we ask a well-known person to explain an important legal concept or event in the news. And the topic today is the ability of charter schools to impose dress codes that discriminate against girls. To read today's topic, I'm very pleased to welcome Tori DeVito. Tori DeVito is an actress best known for her six season run on NBC's Chicago Med and her roles in Vampire Diaries, One Tree Hill, and Pretty Little Liars, among many others. So I give you Tori DeVito on dress codes in charter schools. Are state charter schools subject to federal oversight? A case now pending at the Supreme Court, Charter Day School versus Pelletier, may result in more latitude for states to create charter schools whose policies would be unconstitutional in a public setting. As part of its state constitutional obligation to provide for a free public school education, North Carolina, like many states, has authorized the creation of public charter schools to expand educational opportunities in its public school system. Charter schools are currently subject to the same general oversight as all public schools and must meet curriculum and performance standards, as well as comply with the state and federal constitutions. Charter Day School, CDS, is a company that runs four charter schools in North Carolina. CDS advertises a traditional values-based education, including subjects such as Latin and English grammar and a conduct code according to which students must address teachers as ma'am and sir. To foster classroom discipline and mutual respect between boys and girls, the school's dress code requires boys to wear shorts or pants and girls to wear a skirt, jumper, or skirt, except in phys ed classes. The mother of a kindergarten student asked the school to change the dress code to allow girls to wear pants or shorts. CDS refused the request, explaining that the different dress requirements aim to preserve chivalry, which CDS's founder later explained was a code of conduct where women are regarded as a fragile vessel that men are supposed to take care of and honor. Three students and their parents sued CDS in federal district court, asserting that the dress code violated their rights under the Equal Protection Clause among other claims. The trial court agreed that the charter school was a state actor, meaning it was subject to constitutional restrictions on state action and that the policy violated the girls' equal protection rights. On appeal to the Fourth Circuit, a panel of three judges reversed the district court, concluding that the policy was constitutional. 
But then the full court of 16 judges voted to rehear the case with all judges participating. The full court, applying an intermediate scrutiny standard of review, held 10 to 6 that the dress code was based on impermissible gender stereotypes, furthered no important governmental objective, and therefore violated the equal protection rights of the girl students. The full appeals court's decision hinges in part on the conclusion that the charter schools were exercising state power delegated to them by North Carolina as part of the state's constitutional obligation to provide free and universal public school education. CDS has now asked the Supreme Court to hear the case, and it is shaping up to be a very public battle with different parties taking sides on the initial question of whether the court should take the case. The court has asked the Department of Justice's Solicitor General to provide the views of the government as to whether the court should rehear the case. Given the court's makeup, if the court accepts review, it could well use the case to permit charter schools to adopt policies that would be unconstitutional in a public school setting on the ground that charter schools aren't state actors, at least in many familiar settings. For Talking Feds, I'm Tori DeVito. Thank you, Tori, for explaining that current lawsuit. Tori is also an advocate for women and animals and is deeply engaged in nonprofit work, serving on the board of directors for Safe BAE, a nonprofit dedicated to prevention of sexual assault and violence, and a spokesperson for NHPCO, a hospice care organization. And now, a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. Hello, I'm Lauren Johnson, director of the ACLU's Abortion Criminal Defense Initiative. Let's be clear, those who want to end access to abortion care did not stop at the reversal of Roe v. Wade. Prosecutors and politicians across the country are now threatening criminal penalties against providers, helpers, and in some instances, those who access abortion care. The attack on reproductive freedom continues, and we will not stop fighting back. In addition to the work the ACLU is doing to stop laws that ban abortion, we're working alongside other reproductive legal rights organizations in the Abortion Defense Network to provide critical legal defense support. The ACLU's Abortion Criminal Defense Initiative is mobilizing a network of skilled criminal defense attorneys to defend people facing criminal investigations or prosecutions for providing, supporting, or obtaining abortion care. Those facing prosecution related to abortion care deserve a zealous defense. They will not stand alone. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we stir up a discussion around cocktails. Make your own or buy them ready to drink. There's no question that mixing a delicious cocktail is truly an art form. Precise measurements and proportions, creative substitutions, the presentation itself, and even the speed of delivery are all factors that earn great mixologists the reputations they deserve. But for people who may not stock things like triple sec and bitters, A ready-to-drink cocktail that's pre-measured and mixed just might be worth pulling off the shelf. Ready-to-drink cocktails don't necessarily give you the satisfaction of creating a drink from scratch, but they do offer up undeniable convenience, removing the complexity of recipes, the burden of acquiring ingredients, 
and the time it takes to measure, pour, mix, crush, stir, and of course, repeat. Plus, you still have the ability to customize your drink, adding a splash of this or that, here or there, to your liking. So, whether you're into customization or convenience, ready-to-drink cocktails give you a little bit of both. Now, who says you can't have your cocktail and drink it too? So what's better, customization or convenience? Probably depends on the situation. It can be fun crafting your own cocktail. But when time is short, ready-to-drink cocktail sure does hit the spot. Either way, you can grab all the ingredients you need for a great craft cocktail or get your ready-to-go favorite at Total Wine & More. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, can we broaden this to American presidential politics generally now and bring in so Biden makes it official? That's a pretty big piece of news, although it wasn't a surprise. But maybe the message of it was noteworthy. So he has a fairly strong economic and domestic policy record to run on, but it doesn't seem to be moving the voters. His numbers, interestingly, are about where Trump's were. When Trump started the re-election campaign in 2020, he's in the low 40s. What's the sort of political strategy of coming out and making it about democracy and the fight for the nation's soul, et cetera, as opposed to the general policy uh, battle that you might think he has a pretty good argument on? Well, the idea is that if you look at all the polling and the White House knows this very well, that voters don't feel good about the economy. They don't not only don't feel good about the economy, they don't have any idea what the president has done, despite the president being out there and going on a multi-state tour and fanning out the cabinet and trying to get people to understand all of the legislation that he signed and executive orders and things like that. It's just not resonating. You still have high inflation. People are still angry about that. And what worked for Democrats in 2022 was, the, in part, the democracy is that stake argument, but also abortion. And so when you look at the president's argument about freedom, one, he waded into the culture wars, which he's avoided. And there are people around the president who wanted him to get into that fight. And there are people who didn't want him to get into that fight. They, they decided to wait until he was an actual candidate. He talked about the banning of books and things like that. And then abortion. And those are cases and and issues that the White House and the team around the president think are going to be the ones that are best for him. In the meantime, their hope is that the economy gets better and that people start to feel the benefits of some of the stuff that they've done, capping insulin at $35 a month, for instance. So just basic stuff that people aren't reacting to, at least in the polling. And what you look at on the Republican side, if you look at what Donald Trump said in New Hampshire on Thursday night, he hit Biden all on the economy. It's all economic issues because that's where the Republicans know that the president is weak. And it's also where the president's team knows he's vulnerable as well. And that's why you see him focusing on this issue of freedom and something larger at stake than just what's happening in the day today. And oh, by the way, is the argument that the the president's making, things are trending in the right direction, stay the course, and they will get better. Why can't he make the sale on what seems like a pretty good record? Is it an age issue? And by the way, did you guys catch that on Fox News? Nikki Haley basically saying 
If you vote for him, you're voting for Kamala Harris. That was pretty uh, blunt. But what's the disconnect between his record and people's perception of him? I would say first, Carol is right. Voters are not aware of a lot of what the Biden administration has done. And the record in the first two years was an astonishing one. But for example, and I think some of this was missteps by the White House. When you frame your big economic package as build back better, which is a meaningless slogan, and you don't parse it out to a set of programs, all of which are wildly popular with Democrats, Republicans, and independents, then the press treats this as, is it going to be $3 trillion, $3.2 trillion, $1.8 trillion? And it becomes a negotiation, and nobody knows what it is you're doing. Same was true with a lot of other policies. You know that if voters say the economy is not doing well, you're not going to convince them by saying, yes, it is and even giving them statistics. So I thought the first ad, the minute and a half ad that the White House came out with was a stunningly good ad. To me, it ranked with the Reagan Morning in America or even the Bear ads. And it's trying to change this from a referendum on Biden's economic performance or even as performance as president into a choice. And it's a stark choice. And I actually think it's the right way to go The Dobbs issue is going to be a continuing burden around Republican necks. The most reasonable Republican candidate out there, I believe, is Asa Hutchinson. Asa's asked, what would you do if you were president? I'd sign whatever abortion bill came before my desk that the Congress passed. They are all in on something that is increasingly unpopular. We now have Lindsey Graham saying, I want a national ban on abortions. So they're going to be hit with that issue over and over again, and they're going to be hit with stories just like the one in the uh, uh, hearing that Dick Durbin ran in the Judiciary Committee in the Senate yesterday with women with horrendous stories of pregnancies that that were not going to last, where you're being told you'll have to bleed almost to death before we can help you, and there'll be women dying as a consequence. So I think it's the right approach to use. Now, If you noticed in that ad, the link was JoeBiden.com. It wasn't Biden-Harris. And while she is going to be the nominee, I think there is a sensitivity to that argument that Nikki Haley made explicit and explicitly racist in many ways, which is this is about Kamala Harris, not about Joe Biden. And that could be an issue. Of course, Donald Trump is 77 and the Pope is 86 and doing just fine. So Biden will have a case. But I think they're trying to make the, take this away from age and economic performance and approval of president to that choice, and that may work. Carol, I think his suggestion about the dynamic here, you know, you talk about the 30%, but if it's a one-to-one, there may be room, but it wouldn't be for DeSantis, right? It wouldn't be for somebody in the Trump mold. So among the, would you call them dark horses, you know, among the Aza Hutchinsons or maybe Nikki Haley or Tim Scott, do you see any among them that maybe people are giving short shrift to and need more seriously to be reckoned with? Aza Hutchinson's difficult, right? Because how do you win a Republican primary when you're Asa Hutchinson. I mean, he's not appearing in places that are speaking to the 
I mean, he's on MSNBC, you know, our network. And respectfully, that's not a place where the Republican base goes to get its news. So that's tricky. Nikki Haley, you know, was interesting. Her comment about President Biden's age, basically saying that he was going to die before he would serve out his term was a very stark comment, and not all Republicans reacted well to that. And the White House, which hides behind the Hatch Act every day, issued a statement saying on that, and, and which would have been approved way high up, but they decided to weigh in and saying that, oh, we forgot she was in the race. And this was a, a reminder of that. So it's hard to see. There is a nervousness out there among Republicans with DeSantis uh, not doing as well. And there's this sort of discussion about who's the alternative. You know, you want an alternative to Trump, the alternative to Trump. Now they need an alternative to him. You know, somebody like Kemp comes up in conversations among donors, for instance. But it's hard to tell right now because Donald Trump is just sucking up all of the oxygen. I want to have two caveats here. Keep in mind, we may not have a one-on-one race. And that is because we have a group, what I would say is a pernicious group called No Labels, that has raised $70 million. We don't know the donors directly, but we uh, suspect that many of them are Republican billionaires. They are getting on the ballot. They're already there in 20 states, and they're targeted mostly at states that Democrats would otherwise win. Their mantra is... If the two parties nominate extreme candidates, we will have a ticket in the middle. But they've equated Joe Biden and Donald Trump as extremists. So this could be a spoiler. And we have to keep in mind we've had spoilers before. Ralph Nader, Gary Johnson, Jill Stein that can sway an election. And while some of them say we're not out there to do that, others believe a different matter. Joe Manchin is one who's been talking to them about possibly running. And keep in mind that the other day, Manchin said, if I run for whatever office it may be, I will win. And he didn't say I'm running for re-election to the Senate. So keep that in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is the debt ceiling fandango. Back in October, before the midterm elections, I wrote a piece in The Atlantic saying, if the Republicans win the House, watch out for the debt ceiling. I believe that this is much more dangerous than when we came within an eyelash of having default in 2011. And even though we avoided it, our credit as a country was downgraded and it cost taxpayers $19 billion. These people now make the Tea Party group look like statesmen. And Kevin McCarthy is the weakest in this position I have ever seen. He has said that the bill that he got passed by one vote, George Santos, of all people, casting that decisive vote, was a floor, not a ceiling. It's disastrous budget cuts and onerous work requirements, and it's take it or leave it. And I don't know what Biden can do to avoid this other than basically to say the 14th Amendment, there is no way in which it's constitutional to have a debt ceiling. Or, you know, mint the $3 trillion coin. None of those actions would be wildly popular. But whatever happens could get blamed on Biden and it could bring economic chaos. Yeah, let's move to the debt ceiling if we can. And, you know, $19 billion, I think, would look like chump change next to yes. what would actually happen, the catastrophic results of truly 
defaulting, which we're told Yellen says could happen as early as early June. Keeping with the political landscape of it for a second, Carol, does Biden get blamed? He has this narrow vote for next to nothing. Why doesn't Biden simply ignore him? Republicans have historically been blamed in the in the past. Of course, blames the secondary point. The first is how to avoid the default. But has McCarthy really had such an achievement to cobble together this non-bill of a bill? Look, here's where things are. From the White House's perspective, the president has said, I'm not going to negotiate on the debt limit, but we can have a conversation about the budget. What officials say privately is like, they're not going to link the two, but they want to get this resolved in a way where everybody can say they won. The president can say he didn't negotiate on the debt limit. They come up with a budget deal, these sort of parallel tracks. That's the goal. Where the president is now is the White House didn't expect McCarthy to be able to pass anything. So they're caught a little flat-footed and don't have a real answer to this. The president wants and the White House wants to say, oh, we're not going to sit down and have a conversation with McCarthy. We're not going to negotiate. That is becoming untenable in large part because Democrats are saying the president needs to sit down with the speaker. You can't not talk. And from the Republicans' perspective, their messaging out there is, hey, look, we're the only ones who lifted the debt limit. You know, we passed something that would do this. The White House's argument and pushback and Democrats pushback on that is a little more nuanced, which is like, well, it's attached to these cuts and this would be dangerous and whatever. But the bottom line is the president can't afford to have the economy be any worse than Americans feel about it right now. And he can say all day long that this is the Congress's responsibility and they need to do this. But if things get bad, if the country were to actually default, People take it out on the president. So it's not something that he wants to happen, that he wants to see even get close. The question is, at what point, and the question is, are we at that point now? Because the president has said, hey, show, I'll show you my budget, you show me yours. Well, McCarthy showed him something, and there's pressure from Democrats for the president to sit down and have a conversation. McCarthy's saying he wants to have a conversation. And so I think you're going to see this position from the White House potentially soften in in the coming weeks, and the president's going to have to answer because the pressure's not going to go away. Or they're going to dig in, and he's going to take a lot of heat for that, including from his own party. Yeah, that pressure from Democrats is an important factor that I hadn't thought of. I think that Biden just has to ignore him and go to the country and say that these people who under Trump voted for this are now trying to take uh, the full faith and credit of the United States over the cliff and just go very confrontational right now. I, I don't think that you know, saying, all right, yeah, well, let's talk. I think that would be a, a bad solution. I don't think they're going to do it. From your sources, Carol, do you have any sense that they are considering what uh, Norm talked about, but at least they could act unilaterally? Or do they really assume it's got to be with some kind of consent from even the McCarthy side of the world? So in terms of lifting the, the debt ceiling, their line is that this is something Congress has to do. At the same time, if you look at, you know, President Biden lived through and was a huge part of this 2011 standoff. So last time we saw this really happen. And President Obama's team, and which is there's some overlap here with President Biden's current team at the time, looked at all of these options and then they ruled them out. So this is not a crew that's inclined to make those sorts of out of the box 
moves. So it, it seems unlikely that that's something that they would would reach for. And particularly now, I mean, a lot of this depends on what the Treasury says in terms of timing, when this really heats up, you know, when the U.S. actually will reach that point. Right now, there's this sense that there's a little bit more time and there may, it may turn out that there's a little bit even more time than they think. They've taken off the table until they might have to put them back on the table. There are a couple of points to make here. Back in 2011, when we came close to the brink, John Boehner saved the day. Now, he was not the strongest speaker in the history of the House, but he was a giant compared to Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy got the votes that the White House didn't expect from the extremists like Bob Good and Marjorie Taylor Greene because he told them that this was the last compromise. It was the floor, not the ceiling for negotiations. Remember, he's on the shortest leash imaginable. If he cuts a deal where they have to dial way back from what he's proposed, his speakership is likely over. So he is not going to move. Now, there's another analogy here we have to keep in mind. 2008, when we had the financial collapse, you had George W. Bush, Hank Polson, Ben Bernanke, the Republican leaders in the House and Senate, the Republican presidential candidate, all saying, we're going to have a depression unless we have the bailout. House Republicans voted against it. And only when the Dow dropped precipitously did they come back and support it. You've got 30 or 40 Freedom Caucus members who want to go over the cliff. So I don't know if the White House is as prepared as they should be for the possibility that we could actually go to default before we dial back. And the consequences would be long-lasting and severe. And the press is treating this not as Republicans are heading us headlong towards a default. They're treating it as, why isn't Biden negotiating it as if this is a normal... Or at least is bilateral, right? It's so galling. That's why Democrats are nervous right now. It's because of the press framing of this, which is once again, both sides, when it's not a both sides issue. Remember, Republicans like Kevin McCarthy voted three times when Trump was president for a clean debt ceiling, while the debt went up by $7.8 trillion, more than any other president in history. So this is not about fiscal responsibility. It's all about damaging Biden and trying to bludgeon him into accepting things that are not acceptable. Okay, so we are out of time, except for our final feature of Talking Five, where we take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. Oy, this is one where I am clearly the least qualified, but what the hell. Uh, today's question, who will be the Republican candidate for vice president of the United States in 2024? That shouldn't be hard to answer in five words or fewer. Anyone want to take a shot? Christy Nome or MTG? Senator Tim Scott. Mine's not going to be interesting. I have no idea. That's four words, though. All right. And I'll say, me neither, but Nikki Haley. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Carol Norman John. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. 
You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post daily video content breaking down legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This week, we posted a conversation with Colin Woodard about his fascinating research into the prevalence of gun violence across different regions in the United States. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for talking five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McCardle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Emma Maynard, and Colena Tano. Thanks very much to Tori DeVito for explaining the raging North Carolina lawsuit over dress requirements for high school girls. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Lintman. Talk to you later. 